And the thing that led the recession was personal services and a bunch of things that are normally recession proof. Do you think the inflation came from too much demand, too much stimulus, too much monetary stimulus, too much fiscal stimulus? Or do you think it came from supply shocks, which the Fed raising the interest rate can't fix? That matters a lot. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Austin Goolsby. Austin is a Robert P. Gwynn Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, where he has served on the faculty since 1995. He previously served as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and a member of President Obama's cabinet. Prior to that, he served as chief economist of the president's Economic Recovery Advisory Board. He's been named one of the 100 global leaders for tomorrow by the World Economic Forum and one of the six gurus of the future by the Financial Times. Austin, welcome to the podcast. I've appreciated the opportunity to work with you with the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. You have an exceptional ability to explain complex economic issues clearly and powerfully. And as someone who can all too often make simple things complex, I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Thanks for having me. So let's start near the beginning. You grew up in the greater LA area. Tell me a bit about your family and the role that that has played in your life. I was born in Waco, Texas. That's my dad's family was from Waco and my mom's family was from Abilene. And they moved, like you said, to Southern California when I was when I was young. I was an only child. So in a way, my direct family was extremely influential on my life because it was kind of just my mom, my dad and me. We didn't have extended family near us. And we would go back in the summers and holidays and stuff to to the old country. But it was a lovely time to be a kid. I mean, in in Southern California, where we were was this town of Whittier. It's the town where Richard Nixon was from. And as I used to say, with people were like, ah, you're from California. And I'd be like, this is more like the Indiana of California. <laughs> but but it, was a lo- it was a lovely place. So you must have been a really good student because you were part of a special program that had you on track to graduate high school at 14. But your parents took a different route, right? And they enrolled you at the Milton Academy, a private school in New England with strong academics. So talk a bit about that. When you arrived there from LA, what was your mindset? What were your academic interests? I loved science and math as a kid. And I loved speech and debate and politics. And I used to joke that I, I either wanted to be an astrophysicist or country music star. And I, and I spent well, like way too much time trying to figure out if that could be combined. And somehow that's, that's how I ended up in economics. But um, it was one where my parents themselves, their own personal lives had been changed through education. They both went to Baylor as where a lot of the extended family had gone to Baylor. And we moved to California 
they had a series of tests. You know, I was I was in what a lab rat or something. And, and in these tests, I did well enough that they would say, oh, you've got to go to this program. You got to sign up for that. And my dad was totally open to it. And the program kind of had this emphasis. I guess it came from their view that the last thing you want to do with a kid who's really smart is to put them in a school environment where they're not going to be challenged and they're not going to, they're, they're just kind of going to burn out. I think that's why they were pressing this. Everybody who's above this threshold should try to go to college at age 14. And my parents didn't know exactly, you know, it, it wasn't their world. So they were like, oh, I guess if you say so. But my dad just kept thinking, wait, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, how would he, how would he get, if he went to college, he was 14, how would he get along with anyone? You know, how would he have a girlfriend? Like, what is he going to do? So, uh, so they looked at, um, at different schools and there are, there are a bunch of outstanding high schools. And, and I went to this school, Milton, uh, this is outside of Boston, which is about half day students from Boston and half boarding students. So I went to boarding school. I had never really been east of the Mississippi in my life, I don't think, maybe once, but um, it ended up being an amazing experience, both personal experience to kind of grow up through your teen years with people from all over the place. And also it put me on the path to, to being an economist. So I, so I went there, I still loved science and math. Milton has, an, has now and had then an amazingly successful speech and debate team that I kind of got pulled into because I was, I was loud. I felt at that time like economics felt some kind of combination of math and science and politics and speech and debate. And that's, that's how even though I was just a young man, but I kind of got into it and it wasn't, that wasn't wrong. You know, and it was, I was not as sophisticated. I didn't know anything about it, but that as approximation is, it wasn't terrible. And, um, and the guidance counselor at the school, Mrs. Case, asked me, I don't know, maybe it was a sophomore, junior or something, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, well, I think I would like to be an economics professor. And it turns out Mrs. Case's husband was Chip Case, the economist of the Case-Shiller house price index. And so she started laughing and she said, do you want to be an economics professor? And I said, well, yeah, why is that funny? She was like, well, my husband is that. I think he could help you. So that started one of the wonderful mentor relationships of my life, Chip Case. I mean, I was a clueless high school student, but he got me a job as a research assistant at the Boston Fed. And he would take me to seminars. I met, they don't remember it, but I met Larry Summers. I met Greg Mankiw. I met Bob Schiller. I met all these guys at econ seminars when I was a sophomore and junior in high school because Chip would take me there. And then he would, he would poke me. He'd be like, ask a question, ask a question. What did I know? I would ask a question. I was like, if he told me to ask a question, I'll ask. So it's fun to think, you know, think back on that time. That's a really terrific story. And I want to continue with your ability to seek out and find mentors and what that meant. But I want to come back to this public speaking, because I've watched you present some of your ideas with color and with flair, right? And 
the analogies you use, how you speak. So, you know, I see you got on the debate team at Milton, and you mentioned that earlier when you were talking about L.A. So did public speaking come nationally to you, or how did that skill develop? Talk a little bit about that, and then we'll go back to, to economics and the mentor. I don't totally know. In a way, maybe all my life, everybody would have told you I was way too loud. I love hearing people's stories and telling stories and stuff like that. When I was a freshman in high school, I showed up. I was on the freshman football team. And actually, I was the captain. I was the middle linebacker. And if anybody sees me, I was even smaller than then as I am now. And I'm a skinny guy. And as I say, I'd like to think that's because I was the toughest son of a bitch alive. But actually, it was because the defensive captain is the one that calls the plays. And the coach came out on the first day and said, who's the loudest? And everyone pointed. They said, that kid. And they said, "Okay, you're the captain. So I guess it was somewhat natural to get into that. And as I did it in high school, I did mostly this event called extemporaneous speaking, which they give you a question on current events topics, and you have 30 minutes to write and memorize a speech answering, you know, whatever question that they, that they gave you. And I just, I really love that. It combined current events as well as a bunch of time pressure and trying to be persuasive. And that's sort of how I got into it. I guess. I haven't given it that much thought to think whether it was natural. I certainly did a lot of practice every day. but I assume you must have done pretty well. Were there competitions in that area? Milton itself does always very well. I ended up winning nationals in that event. And the team, at that time, there was also a team national championship. And Milton won the national championship as a team that year, too. So pretty neat. So I want to come back to the mentor. You found your first mentor. You got the opening by accident, but then you took it and ran with it, right? Yeah, that's a nice description. Then you repeated it because, as I remember, I think I've got this right. When you're talking about the case Schiller, there's a big name. And to me, an even bigger name is James Tobin, right? The Nobel Prize winner economist at Yale. And so you went from Milton to Yale and... Somehow or other, you got hooked up with James Tolbin early on. So talk a little bit about that and did what you did with your first mentor sort of convince you it was important to have a mentor every place. So Tobin was an amazing monetary economist, macroeconomist, and they announced that it was going to be, at that time, they had mandatory retirement or something. It was going to be the last class that Jim Tobin ever taught was to be my freshman year. And the problem was the class he taught was some honors macro class only for sophomores. So I was like, oh no, I've got to figure out how to get in that class. And it was, at least it was in the spring. So I I asked Jeff Case, Jeff Case was like, you got to do everything you can. You want to take this class. So I went and I took the intro micro and macro in the fall you had to have taken micro and macro and gotten a's in both so i took both of those and then i had a bunch of ap credits from high school so i went down and i officially accelerated and if you look look on my transcript there is this weird period where 
halfway through my freshman year, I suddenly become a sophomore and I tried every other thing and I got, I ended up getting into the class and then I did well in the class. And at one point, Jim Tobin then called me in and I was unaware, but he had a thing that if he identified people that he thought were promising or something, he would pull them into his stable of research assistants. So I started being his research assistant. This whole funny side note, the person who was the head research assistant that I had to work for was this guy, Andrew Metric, who's now the head of the Yale program on yep. financial stability. And this, <laughs> most of the research assistants were sophomores and juniors, but, but I was a freshman. And so Metric was like, who does this kid think he is? And so he basically hazed me. It was like, was like, you know, oh, you think you're, a, I was like, I don't think I'm anything. I'm just here trying to help the team. And he was like, you know, go get the books, go carry this stuff, rookie. You know, so, so it was all of that. Fast forward a lot of years and I go to be head of this, I go to the Council of Economic Advisors and then I'm head of the Council of Economic Advisors and who's the chief economist working for me, but Andrew Metric. And I was like, oh, it's payback time now. Remember all the books I had to fill out, all the forms you made me you know, type in. So through this working for Jim Tobin, and um, at that time he was, he was thinking a lot about European unemployment. Long-term unemployment was a huge problem in, in Europe, would end up being a similar kind of thing in the post-financial crisis in the US. But I got to know, to I mean, just such a generous soul and amazing. And, um, and he would go to Wisconsin every summer. He asked, I, I ended up becoming his, his house sitter and take care of his dog and stuff in New Haven in the summer when I was working and he, and he would, he would leave town, but he had these gigantic Newfoundlands and Tobin was himself a big guy. I mean, he was tall and he was muscular. So he told me, okay, you got to give this dog, like 125 pound dog, you got to give this dog a heartworm pill each day. And I said, okay, what if I just put it in a hot dog or something? No, no. He said, he can, he can smell it or taste it or so he'll, he'll eat the hot dog. He'll spit it out. You just got to grab his head. He grabs the dog's head. He says, you just bend his head back like this. You pull his mouth open. And he's, he's like a lion tamer or something. He's like, pulls his mouth open. And he says, you got to stick it right back, way back in his throat so he can't spit it out. And he was like, the dog's like, ah, and, and swallows it. And uh, I was like, oh, okay, um, I'll just do that. <laughs> the very first day I walk up and I reach, I said, like, you know, I can't remember the dog's name, but I was like, come here, Rover. And then I reached up and I picked up the jar that had the heartworm pill. <laughs> And as I started to open it, the dog just said, began growling at me. And I was like, you know what? We're not going to give the dog the hardware pills. I'm going to hope for the best. <laughs> but uh, oh. how I got into it was, for, was from class. And then, and then he hired me. Such an interesting guy and, and a you know, mentor to so many students over so many years. You know, Janet Yellen herself was his student. And, uh, and everybody who came in contact with him, he was just such a wonderful teacher. So now we're going to fast forward to the political side, because you ended up going, getting a PhD at MIT, and you landed at that wonderful spot you and I both appreciate, the University of Chicago. 
And while in Hyde Park, you got to know Barack and Michelle Obama. So tell us a bit about how that relationship evolved with the Obamas, how it was that you began advising Barack Obama, how did this relationship evolve over the years, any early anecdotes on your interactions with him and advisory roles? Yeah, it was kind of crazy. Like, what, what is the probability that a person that you knew and is kind of your buddy is going to end up becoming president of the United States? There was a certain irony to it as well, which is at some point along the way, I had this job offer to go to Princeton. And I thought about it seriously because I was at the business school at Chicago where I had, I had been and, and I was tenured. And the one thing I thought was like, well, I've never was in an econ department. I was always at a business school and maybe life would be different you know, in an econ department, if we had more PhD students and stuff like that. And I thought seriously about it. And I didn't go because I, I said, you know, I, I know I love it here. And I love my colleagues. But at that time, I said, the one thing is, if you work on economics of public policy, I felt like I was kind of writing off ever getting directly involved in, in policy making itself to stay at Chicago, because it was like, Princeton and Harvard and, you know, these places are kind of in a corridor where they're, they're involved in Washington in a way that Chicago kind of isn't. It's only a few years after that, that, as I say, Hank, Michelle was way more famous than Brock was. She had a big job at the university and he was my state senator, but he was, I knew him just as a guy from the birthday parties. I mean, our oldest daughter was between the two Obama daughters. And I would see him at where they were both at the lab school here in Chicago. So he started running for the U.S. Senate and his people called around and they, they, they referred him to me. And somebody called me and said, could you help his economics advising on his run for the Senate? And my first thought was, you're talking about Michelle Obama's husband? Of course I will help him out. And, uh, and so I started helping in those days. There was a whole backstory. They recruited a guy from Maryland to come run against him when his opponent dropped out. His opponent, who's from Goldman Sachs, who you, you, I'm sure you knew well, dropped out for various reasons. And then they, so they recruited this out-of-state out of candidate to run against him. And that person kept coming up with these bomb-throwing policy proposals and so they would send to me to write a memo. Could you write a memo saying why this doesn't work? So one of them was the Allen Keys proposed to replace the income tax with a sales tax, but to keep it from being regressive, he was going to exempt housing, food, clothing, transportation, senior citizens, and poor people. And so then they sent to me, could you figure out what the rate would have to be on the sales tax for them to do that? And the answer, you know, it depend how you want to calculate it. The answer was like 75% or something like that. And uh, so they brought me to the debate with, he debated Alan Keyes and I, I was like the weapon. So, so Alan Keyes kept saying, you should go across the street and talk to an economist at the University of Chicago and they'll tell you that what you say makes no sense. So Obama stands up at the debate and he's like, you said that 
Well, I have one right here, Professor Goolsby. And all the memos, everything was Professor Goolsby. I have Professor Goolsby right here. And he says, your plan will raise taxes to 75%. And uh, Keyes is like, that's not my plan. That's totally, And then they moved to the next thing. But that was, that was my appearance. So I hadn't really talked with him face to face. So the debate ends and they say, uh, you should go up to the green room and uh, introduce yourself. So I go up and I knock on the door and Obama answers the door and he says, who are you? And I said, I'm Professor Goolsby. And then he pauses for a second and he looks at I me mean, just like this look of disgust on his face. He's like, you're Professor Goolsby? He's like, I thought I had a 70-year-old guy with a pipe and a tweed jacket. You look nothing like a professor. And then he said, and what is with this Goolsby? What is that? And I said, hey, man. You're telling everybody you're the skinny guy with the funny name. You stole my bit. Uh, that's what I've said. Well, so he laughed, but he never called me Professor Goolsby again. So great story on the introduction. But then a number of years later, he's president. And so Austin, many economists, whether they're in an academic department or a business school, are interested in economic policy. Few make the jump from the academy to the White House and got to see how the sausage is made in Washington, D.C., which is very different than in the classroom. So talk a little bit about what you learned about economic policymaking during your time at the White House. What was it like working with President Obama, formulating policy? How did he work with his economic team? Any anecdotes? No, I know it was a longer story getting there because you started off yeah, right. by heading up a committee, but I'm talking about now you're there. You're working with him, Council of Economic Advisors and chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Talk a bit about that. Well, the through the campaign, the, the whole financial crisis blew up, as, you, as you'll remember well. Uh, so it was a nightmare. I mean, it was a nightmare. And you were talking to him as a candidate, I know. And we were trying to, as best we could, get a handle on, A, just understanding the problem. And then B, where there were disagreements in approach between what you guys were already doing and what we wanted to do, sorting through that of like, okay, well, starting January 20th. And, he's, uh, and he supported us. <laughs> yeah, he mostly, he, he mostly did yeah. over the objection of a lot of his political advisors. You know, they yeah. were like, we can make great hay if you'll just go out and trash everything they're doing. But he, he, he wasn't going to do that because- Look, partly because that's who he is and partly because all the economists were saying, we, we cannot screw this up. If we screw this up, we're going into the depression. This is not to be trifled with. I would say one of the momentous things that happened you know, just for my own life as this was going along too is I got to know very well Paul Volcker, who endorsed Obama early on and was, I found, an extremely clear thinker about economic crises, financial crises, the importance of building your credibility, and the ways that was going to be tested as the tides come in, the tides go out, the land moves under your feet. So I would say Obama's approach in the campaign and the transition were more open-ended discussions once the financial crisis came and 
he took office, there really is not time for that anymore. And the oppressively pressing nature of crisis and the the auto companies are failing this week. We have to decide by Friday, is the government going to take them over? Okay, next. Now housing finance is about to go under and 3 million people are about to be foreclosed on. We have to sort that out in the next 10 days. And now they're doing the stress test and maybe the bank, maybe we're going to have a whole second round of bank failures. And it was just unrelenting one after one week after another. I was already, as you know, a believer in Obama's judgment, that he had really good judgment, and that the public perception that he doesn't get too high and he doesn't get too low, he's kind of a cool cucumber, that wasn't wrong. And it was a moment where that personal attribute was really totally appropriate. And we had many arguments and, and discussions and debates among the economic team over details. At the end of the day, the fact that we would go in and everybody would take a position and argue about it, but then Obama's the guy that's got to make the decision. That was a great relief because I actually think his, his judgment was extremely strong. So let's now, Austin, talk a bit about, let's go to the present. Yeah. Let, let's start with the economy today. How do you assess the economic situation in the U.S. today? How does it compare to previous eras in American history? And how does it compare with other major economies around the world? I led an unsuccessful effort to try to get us to stop referring to the COVID downturn as a recession. Because while it was a very steep downturn, it looked nothing like previous recessions in American history. It was not driven by housing, consumer durable goods spending, or any of the cyclical stuff that normally goes down in a recession. In fact, those things went up. And the thing that led the recession was personal services and going to the dentist and a bunch of things that are normally recession-proof. So that's made this a super weird recovery. So we've come back, but the question of how much overheating has already happened or is still due partly depends on how much pent-up demand do you think there is for all those personal services? And, you know, not, neither you nor I are going to go get two haircuts because we had to cut our own hair during the pandemic. I'm not even going to get one haircut. No, exactly. I, my wife said, I had to start cutting my own hair. I was like, I've been cutting my own hair for quite a while. Yeah. <laughs> but that issue of is elective surgery going to go back to the level it was pre-pandemic? Or is there going to be one year where more people are getting elective surgeries than ever did in steady state before because there's pent-up demand? Or are more people going to go to Disneyland than ever went before? Is demand for restaurants going to be higher than it was in 2019 because people are starved for time out? That makes a huge difference in how overheated you think we are. And then the second thing that has made the Fed's job complicated is this thing of, do you think the inflation came from too much demand, too much stimulus, too much monetary stimulus, too much fiscal stimulus? Or do you think it came from supply shocks, which the Fed raising the interest rate can't fix? That matters a lot. That's not just an esoteric thing that the economists are fighting about. 
That matters a lot for what you think the federal government should do now. And should the Fed just off to the races keep raising rates 100 basis points a meeting, meeting after meeting? Well, yes, if you think this was all about demand and we're about to get it incorporated into inflation expectations and we'll have holy hell trying to get rid of it, you know, a la Paul Volcker, but not if you think, hey, wait a minute, the Fed can't pump oil and the Fed can't get rid of long COVID and make those people come back to work. All it could do is generate a stagflation. So I kind of think that's where we are. And then on the subunit discussion, was there a recession in the first two quarters of this year because GDP growth was negative for two straight quarters? I would just say, I don't think there was. That's a rule of thumb. Economists don't tend to look at it because in a precise way, you can miss things like the COVID downturn. Two quarters is six months. If you require six months of negative growth, then the COVID downturn was only two months. You would not say that that was a recession. But that said, I kind of irked my friends in the Biden administration, of which I have many, when they said, oh, we need economists to go out and say this wasn't a recession. And it, it is true. There's never been a recession where jobs went up. So the fact that we were adding literally millions of jobs in the first two quarters means it wasn't a recession. But I made them upset because I said, why argue about what was or was not in March when it's very likely that we could be in a recession in the immediate term? You know, the most common cause of recession in the United States is the Fed raising the interest rate faster than the economy can handle. And the Fed is raising rates as fast really as it's ever raised them. So the chance of recession is pretty good. So are you really gonna feel better if you said, no, no, we were right. There wasn't a recession in the second quarter and the recession that started in the fourth quarter, that was something totally different. That's not what we were talking about. I mean, I just, I just didn't understand that emphasis. Okay. What do you think about President Biden's actions on student loan forgiveness? I wasn't a big fan of blanket forgiveness. And there was even one moment where they said they were thinking of waiving all the debt forgiveness as opposed to having a cap. I am much more of a fan of targeted to those in need. I do think there was a moment. This pandemic has been a devastating moment for the educational attainment of the American people. So there was kind of a accumulations of debt that, that were a little different than at normal times. But that said, the part that says they're going to change the debt payment rules to be based on what your income is, I have a little fear that that one might, at the for-profit schools, drive up the tuition, that they'll basically be like, ah, well, if you, the borrower, are limited in how much you have to pay by the federal government, then we're going to jack up the price because you won't have to pay that price anyway. So there are definitely some parts of it that I think have some problems. That said, it felt to me like after we just passed a $2 trillion windfall tax cut for big corporations, the same crowd that had been vociferously in favor of doing that lost their lunch screaming and yelling about how dare they give debt forgiveness to 
poor kids, you know, who were going to college. I, I kind of thought that was overblown. Yeah, but they gave debt forgiveness to some people that weren't poor kids going to college. Some right? people that weren't. I agree. If it was up to me, you know, restricted yeah. just for Pell Grant kids or or something like that. But so I want to go to another topic. One of the areas you spent considerable amount of time on is thinking about innovation in R&D. So I'm curious how you assess the recently passed Ships and Science Act. That's $280 billion. It's got $50 billion. Part of that is to boost U.S.-based semiconductor manufacturing. Do you think this is the right approach? Anything that's that big actually embodies a lot of things. There are some things in it I quite like. The STEM training, there's a bunch of stuff that's in about education. And as I just mentioned before, I think that the collapse of educational attainment and the what we discovered that online education is dramatically worse and we're going to be living with the consequences for a long time. I think that part of the CHIPS Act, unabashedly, I'm a big fan. The spirit of the CHIPS Act, that it's like uh, industrial policy and that what we need is let's pick this industry to kind of pump it up, defeat the Chinese. There, I'm getting a little more uncomfortable. I think I have a good friend who's really an expert on semiconductors, who before there even was a formulated a CHIPS Act, when it was still just like a rumor, hey, we need to do something. He told me there could be a national security-based argument for doing something to promote the ecosystem. But he said at the beginning, you got to be tremendously careful that what doesn't happen is that you just end up spending hundreds of billions of dollars and aren't able to get to the frontier. And that it basically just ends up being a subsidy for building fabs. And the thing kind of spirals into like the Foxconn experience in Wisconsin, where they're going to build a factory. And then it turns out the margins aren't there and they don't have the engineers. And then they take the subsidy and then it just never takes place. This is an area that it's got a high degree of difficulty. The czar in charge of that is this guy, Ronnie Chatterjee, who we both know and worked for me at at CEA. I'm a big fan of his. I think if anybody can get to clarity and prevent that from ending up being a pork barrel waste, let's call it, um, I have some confidence, but I have some fears. Yeah, because first of all, there was a big chip shortage, right? So we all suffered from it. Yes. But we're going to be looking at that in the rearview mirror. Yes. When this gets done. So what we really want to do is making sure we're doing the most advanced stuff, right? So anyway, it's an interesting problem. What do you think? Do you think that there's a high risk that we don't get the most advanced stuff? I believe we need more spending in this area generally, right? $280 billion is a lot. So as you can look through it and you read through it, there's some language which is quite concerning. I mean, they try to do all kinds of things, right? Not just innovation, but job creation, diversity, all kinds of good things. And I've watched people talk about building, replicating Silicon Valley over and over again, and they don't do it right. So clearly, we need to keep on the advanced frontier being a leader. And we are now right the leader. Taiwan Semiconductor is, there's some others in the So we, we need to do more in that area. I would like, like anybody else, to create more jobs here. But I think a lot of the issue here is going to be how it's implemented. And the economists aren't going to implement it. But again, I would like to close now asking you a 
a question which you've got to get all the time. So you're a professor at Booth, you're working with students. So share some of the advice you give for younger, younger listeners. So not just your business school students at Booth, but what advice do you give to someone looking to make a difference in today's world? That's space. Mostly, like you say, I, I teach the MBA. So they're a little bit older. They're not K through 12. They're not like high school students. But I don't know if, if you've uh, seen the same thing, Hank, but the, the capability, just the both natural talent and just the impressiveness of students today, college students, business school students, high school students, it's unbelievable. I mean, the, there's nothing that will make you feel better about the future. Uh, there's nothing to make you feel worse than kind of turning on C-SPAN and, and seeing what, what's happening. Nothing will make you feel better than going and spending 30 minutes, two hours, whatever, talking to these young people about what they about what they feel passionate about, what they want to do, and they're looking for maybe some direction. And as you know, you, you've been so far in deeply involved and out front on these issues of climate. That's a huge one for young people today. And it's a good thing it is because. A, we, the older people, have kind of screwed it up for them. And B, we don't really know what to do. So I usually advise, get some skills as you can. Educational skills, they can be yoked to your dreams. You can still be an idealist and, you know, know how to change a tire or, or, the, or the equivalent in policy. I often encourage people to learn more economics. Because I do think that the economics and business and market-based approaches, those are some of the most effective approaches we have. But I definitely encourage them not to shy away from public service, not to shy away from making the world better. And my experience has been the young people today, they have a real taste for that. You know, I felt like when I was in college, if you were a person who said out loud, like, well, I want to make the world better mostly people would kind of laugh at you. Ha ha, that's the kind of person that thinks he wants to make the world better. And now they don't, no, nobody laughs at that. So I think the getting some extra skills can be an important part of that. But the second I, I always tell them is be open to, you know, as you get those skills, be open to serendipity. There's so many times in my life, in your life, and in, in everybody's where you got a great teacher, you, got, you, you had a mentor, you had somebody who gave you a chance, they, they gave you something to look out for, some opportunity, do it, take it, go, you know, move to the new town. A buddy of mine, the guy that wrote uh, Freakonomics, Steve Levitt, was my best friend from graduate school. And he has this uh, paper where they survey people and basically, they have them flip a coin. They're like, if you're coming up to a major decision point in your life, flip a coin and do one or the other. You know, you know like commit to, to that you're either going to take the new job or not take the new job. And then they come back to them later and they ask them things like, do you regret the decision you made? And it, it was just random. You know, it was influenced by the flipping the coin. And the people who regret are the people who didn't do something. That, that it really is kind of like the Mark Twain thing of you regret the things you didn't try rather than the things you did try. So, so I kind of encourage them to, to try that too. 
it's an amazing thing because I tell people all the time there aren't dress rehearsals in life. Uh, the biggest mistakes you may make will be errors of omission, not commission. So, Austin, thank you. You're an interesting man, and you've given our listeners a lot to think about. Yeah, Hank, thanks for doing this. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.